0: My name is Sims, for those who don't know me, one of the pastors here at Broadway. Today, our service is totally different. I think if you've been here for the last two Sundays, the last two Sundays, including this one, have been different from what we usually do. Do not not think that this is all that we always do. It's always different. It's it's different. It's been different. So praise God for that. I want to read quickly from Psalm chapter 40, verse 10. Um, Actually, verse 9 and 10, it says, I proclaim your righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips. As you know, O Lord, I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. This is David speaking, and he's saying, I do not hide the faithfulness of what God has done for me in my heart only but I share it with others. And this service today, as we end the year, we want to be able to share those things. It's not all of us, obviously, are going to do that, but in the next few Sundays, each Sunday we're going to have somebody come and share what God has done for them. When we share those kind of things, three things happen. We encourage one another, we glorify God, but also what do we do when that happens? We we, we are building ourselves up. When we share those stories, those stories are our stories. It's your story of how God has worked in your life. But all that has been done so that He can be glorified. How is He going to be glorified if you're quiet about it? So, this week and in the next few Sundays, uh, this week will be totally different because there will be a lot of testimonies. But in the next few Sundays until the fourth, uh, the first Sunday of, of February, we're gonna have at least one person share testimony. So to start our testimony time today, I'll ask Lisa to come forward. She's going to share her testimony, and then um, people are going to come up that have uh, been asked to share their testimonies. They're going to come up one after another and continue to share that. Lisa and Ben have been like amazing friends to me, but also great worship leaders at our church, and they help us lead the worship team and all that. So we're excited to to have you share what god has done for you lisa
1: all right i have notes so forgive me for staring at my phone uh but i would just ramble for an hour and a half if i didn't so i'm not one to use the term spiritual attack often Uh, i don't like giving the enemy that much power thought really um 2023 started out as a busy year for our family, but we happily went about serving God in the various ways that he had called us. Uh, We were seeing good fruit blossom in our kids, working with the youth group. I volunteer with circles. We were pursuing becoming a foster family and all of this while having deep, meaningful conversations about Jesus with our friends and family. In August, I went on this amazing 40th birthday girls trip with my high school besties, and I got to share how Jesus had been moving in my life with a group of mostly non-believers. The following night, I suffered a spontaneous coronary artery dissection, which led to a heart attack. After three weeks of resting and adjusting to new medications, I felt strong enough to lead worship standing right here on this stage, and I shared about how God was literally holding me together. The very next morning, that same artery, my LAD artery, tore again, causing another heart attack, this time more severe, leaving me with only 35% heart function. Through October and November, I did cardiac rehab and wrestled with God over why this happened and what I needed to do going forward. That wrestling still continues today. On December 21st, just a week ago, I got a call letting me know that my mom had died. My mom and I had been estranged for several years. Complicated was the only way to describe my feelings. Three days later, on Christmas Eve, my beloved Uncle Ron, who happily stood in as a surrogate father for me and a grandpa to my boys, also died. This unique place of grief has brought a flood of emotions and memories to my brain and my heart, and I'm only um, beginning to process them. My mother chose not to have a relationship with me, I held a small strand of hope that healing would come to that broken relationship, but now it won't. As part of my grief, I've been wrestling with my guilt on top of it over being more heartbroken about my uncle than my own mother. And over this year... I've listened to a daily podcast called Let's Read the Gospels, which has led me through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John repeatedly every month this year. And last week, I reread Luke 18, 20 through 21. Someone told him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Along with the flood of emotions and memories, I've also been flooded by calls and texts and visits and food from so, so many people who are putting God's word, who hear God's word and are putting it into practice. This has been incredibly healing to my physical and proverbial heart. From sharing my struggles and grief, I've been able to connect with and bless others. God has been showing his kindness and compassion through this church and my wider community, and I'm so, so unbelievably grateful. People fail and fall, but God in his word stands firm. So going into 2024, I'm holding tight to Psalm 27, which says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident." One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. Y'all know I shout. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord.
2: Amen.
3: Hi, my name is Jenna Schwab, and this is my husband, Marcus. Um, And we'd like to share a little bit of our year with you. Um, It seems unreal that we are almost a year out since we found Everett's tumor. Everett was, or is, our um, six-year-old son. Um, And we were completely blindsided by the news We went in for an MRI thinking his headaches were migraines and there wasn't much we'd be able to do for them, only to find that he had a three-inch by three-inch tumor in the back of his head. I had no concept for that as a mom, just completely overwhelmed. I remember Marcus was working that day, and so when I heard the news from the doctor leaving in a daze, not really understanding what was happening. And then as I came into work the next morning, sharing with staff what was happening, and it finally sinking in by reflecting the reactions of them back to me, that became a moment where I began to come into the weight of my grief. In many ways, we were completely unprepared for the day of surgery. Up until this point, they had talked hopefully, we hope, We, uh, the hope we all had was that it would be a relatively quick surgery, four to six hours, and that they would be able to peel the brain tumor off like an orange, Um, but it ended up not being the case.
4: On the day of Everett's surgery, um, Jen's dad came down to, to be with us through the day, and I remember us being the very first ones there to open up shop, so to speak, in the O.R., we're the first family to come back and to, to sit and wait and to kind of begin the day. And as Jen said, we were expecting a four to six hour surgery, and we saw the routine surgery families come in and out. And every hour there was a very sweet nurse named Mary, and her job was just to check in in the OR and come back and check in with the families. And that kind of anchored us through the day. Every hour we'd see Mary, and they're still in there, they're still working, he's doing fine see you in an hour. And every hour we looked forward to Mary coming back and giving us updates. And as eight hours, nine hours, ten hours went by, we started to get a little restless. And I remember Jen giving me time to just go for a walk and walking through the labyrinths of Riley Hospital. And I remember walking past the play center wherever it was just 24 hours ago playing air hockey and having fun and being a boy. I think I had his coat with me just wanting to be tethered to him. And I remember crying out, God, there's no way you can take him from me. As a father, you can't can't take my son from me. And that was a very deep, painful place because months leading up to Everett's diagnosis, uh, I was spending time with my father trying to repair our relationship, and it didn't work. And to feel the gravitation of me wanting to be a father to my son and My dad not wanting to be a father to me is probably one of the most loneliest places that I've been.
3: So, yeah, in the next few days, those were filled with fear and grief and unknowns. The tumor had adhered to the brainstem, which meant the surgery was only partially successful. As the surgeon attempted to get as close to the brainstem without paralysis, no one knew what next steps to take or more like everyone knew and all the opinions differed. (laughs) Um, During this time, I found a secret place. I tend to do this. This was a tiny hallway tucked off behind the elevators facing a wall of windows. It's incredibly difficult to find places of alone in a hospital. And this became a sacred place where I met God and his Um, felt presence was near. And it was also a place where I updated friends and family and where I had chats with a mentor of mine who heard my grief and gave me hope. Just as I needed the staff here to reflect proper grief back to me, I needed my mentor to reflect authentic hope to me. I needed each and every one of you and the ways that you showed your presence to us. And to a point where I could finally say Psalm 54, 4. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. As many of you know, Everett, we did not have a second surgery. We went into chemo drugs, and he's stable and doing, doing well, and you will see him around making lots of noise and running. I am (laughs) sorry. And um, the hope that we have for the future is, is brilliant and white, and sometimes, though, it was as dark as a star far away. And so thank you for being there with us as we were in that.
4: Throughout this year, I've been spending a lot of time contemplating grief and suffering, and along that journey, Um, I've come across uh, Kurt Thompson and some of his ways of how he describes grief and suffering and how that actually um, provokes and actually forms hope. And um, as we think about suffering, uh, I feel like we often think it's something that we do alone. There's that context of suffering isn't suffering unless we are alone in our suffering. And it's a little wordy, but I have a page here that I'd like to read that Kurt Thompson talks to address about that. This mindset of I am on my own, which is far more pervasive and destructive than we realize, stands as a significant cultural structure, a principality or power, if you will, contributing to our suffering in the first place. For indeed, when I tell myself in isolation, any part of my story where pain and shame have taken up residence, this strengthens the deeply noxiously perceived sensation of the story as a whole. This began with our first parents in Eden and extended to their children when Cain, consumed as he was by his shame-filled relational isolation, could no longer tolerate himself. Killing his brother Abel left one dead and the other close to dying. And in various ways, we have been doing this to others and ourselves ever since. This is the ultimate result of being on our own. But our minds being the embodied and relational processes that they are, We're not intended to operate this way primarily. We have been introduced to a triune God who, even in our extended pain, longs for us to know his presence in the middle of it. And by his presence, he enables us to comprehend that he knows our pain even more than we know it, hence Good Friday. Moreover, his presence is mediated by the Spirit through the body of Jesus. Others who are with us in the middle of our pain In fact, the absence of such a body for us is what makes perseverance so difficult. And the presence of his body, the vulnerable community of believers around us, makes perseverance not only possible, but even energizing.
3: It is in the suffering as a community where we are able to find the courage to grieve and the audacity to hope.
4: I wanted to invite us as a church to enter into this place of communal grief together. And I have no reason why I wanted to do that other than I felt the prompting of the Spirit to bring that about. I remember sitting in the, in the Y in the steam room just contemplating these thoughts of grief and loneliness and pain. And I was listening to a song, and in the middle of the song, a question arised in me. Is this something you're teaching me, or is this something that you want to teach more than me? And with the question still in my lips, he already answered it. It's for more than just you. And so I wanted us to listen to the song and to come together um, with whatever grief and sufferings that we have. Um, And this is a great time to be Broadway and to come up to the rails and to be together as a church, knowing that we're not going to leave the room and that we're here
5: with each other. For those of you who do not know Laura yet, you are missing out. Uh, Laura joined our staff uh, this past spring, kind of on an interim basis, um, after Amanda moved on from her role in the office. Uh, we didn't know all of what we were going to need from Laura, um, but she has uh, stepped in since the spring and has, um, have a seat Laura, and has has really um, just shown to be more than capable in the work that she needs to do in the office, but even more than that has just been a great gift to us personally as a staff member. And so um, wanted to give this as an opportunity to, to first of all, I'll let you know she's going to be joining us full-time as our office manager in the new year, and we'll share more about that later. Uh, but also wanted to give you um, an opportunity to get to know her a bit and to hear her story and to hear her own testimony about grief and hope. And so, Laura, thanks for... For joining us. Can you share a little bit about your own uh, religious background and upbringing in your childhood and in your young adult years and the way that that experience introduced you to grief?
6: Yeah. So I was born and raised in a conservative Mennonite community in southern Ontario. My parents were part of I look back, and I think it was kind of an experiment of a church. Um, families were coming together, wanting something different than what they had. And in their desire to follow God, they went to, like, the unth degree. They um, went very extreme in their, what they considered obedience to the word. Um, it basically became a cult of um led by fear and control on the outward there was it looked like there was a relationship but there was a lot of under going on that was not healthy um a lot of spiritual darkness that darkness taught parents to abuse their children in the name of discipline. Um, There was extreme child abuse in the name of discipline all through that group. So I grew up with a fear-mapped brain uh, in a um, fear-driven group. My family moved from Ontario to Pennsylvania and then later to Michigan while I was still at home. So we stayed in the same kind of churches, but I do love that my world got expanded by being in several different places. So even though the trauma I experience was overwhelming, um, I was still all in. I thought this was right. We were the true church, and somehow I needed to make it work. It took coming to grips with a lot of... It took years of pain to put cracks in my armor, it took fear that i would hurt others as i had been hurt to, to get to my heart and realize i need help i don't want to do to these children i was a school teacher at the time i don't want to do to these children what was done to me and that was that was one of the pivotal points for me that i really need some help in my life and i had this insatiable hunger for connection with god i felt like i was being fed fodder in our church. We were being taught the Bible, but the life wasn't there. And I wasn't even allowed to eat from the tables where the living bread was being served. Mm. I began on the slide to relate to people. I wasn't really supposed to reach out beyond our, our borders, but I saw and I felt life that was unmistakable. And even though there was a lot of questioning, a lot of agonizing over that it became clearer and clearer to me that i knew what was life i knew where i was experiencing
5: life the agonizing was thinking about going outside of the community that yes you had been and so but at the same time we're experiencing life hope and joy yes outside of that
6: and also because i had been so brainwashed i felt like i had to disobey god in order to follow him it was this this huge conflict internally so i had to follow life where i sensed life that was basically the only thing i could use as a as a guide yeah. so when i realized i needed to leave in order to continue to follow god it was it was a tremendous loss i was i knew that across the nation I was no longer accepted among my people. I was a black sheep, one of those who were deceived and left the faith, one of those who were prayed over in prayer meetings and whose name was spoken quietly and with judgment. But alongside that grief was was the life, the hope. I I went because I wanted unfettered connection with him. I wanted to be allowed to pursue where he was leading me, not having that put in a box and because of finding that life, hope's tree started to blossom Mm. alongside the grief. So it's like, they're both there, but hope is mixed with, with the grief. And I felt like I was, I still have to do a lot of hard work with grief, letting go forgiveness. Um, and sometimes it feels like an ocean, Mm. One day I was sitting beside the water, and I felt like my grief was deeper than, than the sea. And I just sensed the Lord say to me, as deep as that goes, my comfort's going to go deeper. Mm. And what that did was put a bottom to my grief, and my sorrow was held. Mm. And I'm, I'm believing that we fear grief when we don't feel a bottom to it. And it's almost dangerous to go there unless we have some kind of something to hold it. And the Lord held it that day. And so many people have also held my grief with me, which, which makes it safe to go there.
5: You've shared with me um, about the loss of your father. And can you just share some of that story and how that has led to you to experience of hope on the other side of that?
6: yeah, in 2018, uh, my dad passed away suddenly from a heart attack. My parents lived in Colorado by then and we got this news suddenly late at night. A lot of mixed feelings because after his after the funeral, everything was done and I was back home again. it was like, I'm not grieving so much the relationship we had. I'm grieving the relationship we didn't have. And missing who he could have been. That's what I wanted. I'm missing who he could have been if he had been the person that God created him to be. If he had been able to access his heart from Jesus and live from that. I miss the security he could have given me. I miss the delight and affection that I wanted from him. So in the middle of kind of a numbness, there's also this grief of what I knew he was capable of if he had been renewed. Mm -hmm. So I'm feeling his own depression and heaviness, and I'm feeling his desperate attempts to live how he believes will please the Lord. But it felt like it just all fell flat. And my question was, is it worth it? Was his life worth it? And then that question sank deep inside me. And I started to feel that all over the place. Like, is my life worth it? Like, what is it all about? And a person's life is over so fast. Where, where does it go? Yeah. And what was the point of it? So I was talking to the Lord about that, sitting by the water again, which water seems to be a place where I hear from him. And I was sitting in a pretty serious pit of hopeless despair. But these words started to come to me. I'm going to read you the poem that came to me that day and really, really changed my perspective of life after death or even now as we're living the losses that we experience. So this was started as a prayer. Would you hold today for me? Because I can't. The minutes slip away. The joy, the pain, the monotony, the sights, the sounds, the dreams. And my life is slipping through my fingers. There's so much I long for. So much more than I can possibly accomplish with one little life. And in my fragile humanity, I cannot save my life, my time, my moments, even my people. They too can slip away to that other world without a moment's notice and the ache grows, and the sadness grows darker, and loss feels greater than life itself, and my future looks gray with meaninglessness. But what if? What if there is a keeper, one who turns my daily moments into everlasting treasures? What if the lost days and weeks and years and memories are remembered, held as precious, what if something solid is being formed in spite of my fragility? What if things like smiles and gentle words and honesty turn into gems that build my future home? What if the ones gone on ahead, though not perceivable to me, are closer than I dared to hope? What if friendships truly last forever, becoming richer in eternal light? What if someone greater than I is diligently keeping my life? I know who I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That changed. That changed my worldview.
5: Thank you for sharing. You wrote that poem? I'm not surprised. I just want to make sure that they all knew (laughs) that you wrote that poem. I've been, I've got to read a lot of your poetry. Thank you for that. Laura, because of your, your own experience of, of grief in your life and the way that you have confronted it and, and looked at it, that's an example to me and to us and for the way that you've allowed God to work in your life through that grief. But I just want to ask you, what, why do you think that, that grief is such an integral and essential part of our life here on earth?
6: I think that grief is essential to life because we're exposed, we're living in a world that's exposed to ruin and decay. And every time we see another gray hair, there's a little bit of grief. Every time we see someone we love walking a little slower, there's just that pang. Every time we see another day gone, it's where did it go we're one day older like the end of a year i feel that that sense of the year's gone but if we can embrace like i think we we feel deeply within us that we were designed to live forever Mm. um we remember it's like eden is in our bones we remember eden somewhere inside of us and we long and grieve for what was and what we hope will be in the meantime, we live with a certain amount of ruin. Like, there's ruin around us all the time. Every time fall comes and the leaves fall, I feel some of this. Um, I've learned to see it as rest, but before, it always looked to me like death, and I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Mm-hmm. But, the, but learning to grieve, we know we weren't meant for loss and death. We agonize, our, our brains agonize over ruptured relationships, But in a mysterious way, grief opens the door to hope. Um, If we ignore our losses, they get so heavy that they cloud our skies, they create depression, they haunt our dreams. Loss can be really, really heavy. But grieving losses in safe spaces clears the way for comfort to come. It actually makes space for some rays of hope and light healthy grief liberates us and part of what makes grief essential is grief is a child of love mm-hmm. love suffers long that that verse just came to me as i was pondering grief and i was thinking hmm i always thought love suffers long is something i need to do but i think it's more of a reality mm-hmm. that that suffering is part of love and if i walk in love i do suffer I suffer long. I heard about the things that are foreign to the perfection of Eden that I sense in my heart. It's one of the more austere pathways of love, but it leads to hope and to
5: life and to peace. Would you join me in thanking Laura for her testimony this morning? Um, Laura and I had not talked about this metaphor, but you described grief as a child of love. And earlier I said that grief and hope are sisters. And it's interesting to me today, and I did not plan for this either, but in all three of the testimonies that have been given today, there's all been the grief and loss of a parent. Have you noticed that? And in our good story, we have a father who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us so that he could be with us. And when he sent his son, his son went to a cross. And the cross is the place in history where grief, the deepest grief, and the deepest and greatest hope where they both meet in the cross, the perfect son of God cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment in history of deepest grief where the eternal son of the father experienced a sense of separation from his father. And at the same time, we are told that it was because of the joy that was set before him that he endured that cross But it was on the other side of the cross that new life for him and for us was made possible. And so we are going to take communion today to remember that our Lord and Savior, Jesus, that he went to a cross, that he experienced the
0: deepest grief and the deepest hope that we could ever experience. And our last testimony today will be from Shannon Graham. I'll ask Shannon to come forward. Good morning, Broadway.
2: Um, as Sim said, I am Shannon Graham. I don't regularly attend church here because I live in Michigan, but I grew up here at Broadway. I run my finger over the uh, three-leaf clover on that pew over there so many times, one of the tips is worn down. There are not three-leaf clovers on the ends of the tip or on the ends of the pews upstairs, in case you're wondering. Um little Broadway trivia for you. So growing up in church is a fantastic thing. Like those of you with children, it is good and right that you are raising them in church. But one of the disadvantages of growing up in church is that sometimes your mind learns learns things quicker than your heart does. And for me, my mind picked up biblical principles relatively quickly. And, you know, I, I've never really struggled with understanding how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together and understanding that, you know, the, the big picture is, is Jesus and, and the sacrifice he made for us. That was never my struggle as far as my mind was concerned. But my heart lagged a little bit behind. I knew in my mind that God loved me. I knew that. But it didn't translate to my heart. And, you know, the Bible talks about how, you know, specifically Paul talks about how love is the most important thing. If you don't have love then you don't have anything. And so the knowledge in my head was essentially useless. So I, uh, I have a therapist who encouraged me to ask God to show me how he loved me because through therapy it became clear to her that that was not something that I understood. There was always this angst between me and God. I was willing to be obedient, but it was more out of duty. It was why it was that I would do what I felt like God was asking me to do, why it was I was obedient to the things the Bible said that I should do and how I should live my life. But if obedience without love is just law, and that's never God's heart for us, Like he saved us, you know, Jesus came to save us from the law. And I was still functioning under law often because it was my default. Um, And so asking God to show me how he loved me, I mean, of course, you can't ask something like that of God and him not do it for you. And as he showed me, and there wasn't anything like, you know, this profound, extraordinary like, moment where it was like, oh, ah, and I suddenly got it. It was mostly just in a, a day-by-day relational sort of way that God just revealed more and more of his heart for me. You know, it was easy for me to understand corporately that God loves us, but I, I just, I hadn't broken it down to an individual reality that, If I were the only one, Jesus would have died for just me. Um, It seemed, that idea seemed too terrible and wonderful all at the same time. Like, us? Sure. Me? Oh gosh. And so as I began to lean into that, then, you know, just like Paul talks about, out of love everything flows and so there was this whole other layer of what it is to be a christian and what it is that the scripture has to say that was suddenly clear to me in a way it never had been before when i realized that god's god's motivation is always love like that is that is the wellspring out of which everything god does it all flows from that in Hebrews, it says that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured death on the cross. And I never connected that I am part of that joy. Like Annie, you are part of that joy. Adele, Evelyn, you are part of that joy. And then in in Zephaniah 4:17, it says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. I so often felt like God was disappointed in me that I wasn't living up to his expectations. But this verse, that verse I just read to you, that is not the attitude of... A father who is disappointed or a father who wishes that I were something different than what I am like he rejoices over me he rejoices over you Ryan he rejoices over you Elden Claussen. he rejoices over every person in this room you are all favorite and I am favorite too we're all favorite for different reasons in the same way that You know, Anne Graham is my mother. There's ten of us children, and I can honestly say she doesn't have a favorite. And like, if the kids will admit that there's no favorite, that's probably not. And I've heard people say, "Well, if you don't think there's a favorite, you're the favorite." But we've talked about it, the ten of us. (laughs) Anne doesn't have a favorite. She likes all of us in our own right, and the same is true of God. He likes each and every person in this room. He made you the way you are on purpose. He delights in you, you are precious to him. He wouldn't trade you for anybody else. And so this realization of how it is that God loves me, it didn't just change my attitude towards other people. It didn't just change my attitude towards God or even towards just towards myself. It changed the way I saw my own sin because I have this bad habit. I think a lot of us do where we rummage through the bottom drawer in our mind and pull out old sin and we poke at it and we relive the shame and the guilt and we wish and hope, hope is probably the wrong word, we wish it could have been different. We we like to look at it and relive that pain in our heart. And I realized that if God doesn't do that with my sin, why am I doing that? Like, why do I feel the need to relive shame that God doesn't ever think about anymore? He thinks about me all the time. He thinks about you all the time. He doesn't, he doesn't get in the bottom drawer like we do and poke and prod at old things that are done and finished. And so that was, I think, the, this year, that's the most profound thing that I have realized and that God has revealed to me about the way that He loves me and the way that He loves all of you. My brother Alex, Alex Graham, he talks about how if we believe that God holds us, the part of us that is eternal, that if He holds securely to that part of us, nothing else is ever really at risk and so you hear the arguments about how can a loving god allow jenna how can he allow your son to have cancer how can a loving god do this or allow the things in this world that happen but we are thinking and grounding our reality in this world this flesh it's not eternal the part of us that is eternal The part of us that God desperately loves, that's the part that is always and forever secure in the perfect, unending love of the Father.
5: Thank you. Would you stand with me? And I want you to remember, as you go from this place into your new year, that your father... Motivated by love sent his son and that son for the joy that was set before him endured the cross for you and for me.